If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, and we're going to finish, Lord willing, the chapter this morning. Last time in, uh, we were in 1 Peter, it was two weeks ago, and I opened up with a story from, from, uh, from Spokane, Washington, that I'd recently heard of a public school employee that was fired after expressing in a private conversation their opinion about the public library's hosting of a drag queen story hour. So for those of you who, who, who were here last time, you heard that story. Now, I had heard that there was more to this story, but I was kind of having a difficult time in the time that I had in getting to all the details. And really, I, I wish I probably had postponed uh, telling it. Uh, I, knew, I knew that there was more to it, like she got a, a union rep involved and went to the uh, to, to the school principal, and there was discrepancy whether she was fired or not. And so maybe that was an unwise to use that, whole, the, that story without kind of playing out the whole thing. But I wanted to deal with when we hear, uh, when someone overhears what we're saying, and then all of a sudden there's, there's consequences we are facing. Well, I was uh, uh, approached by a brother just because the story is so shocking. And really, he wanted to make sure that I got my facts right. So I was encouraged to go and to do some more research, and, uh, and I did, and I placed a phone call to, to, to the person who had originally told the story, and I just wanted to make sure I got the facts right. So, so this is uh, maybe apology light, and I should have done a better job in figuring out, out what that whole story was before telling it. You know at times I don't tell many stories like that, and this is a good, a, a good example why. So I, I want to clarify a little bit more what happened although I still think that you will find it, it, it applicable to our lives. So, again, this is not from firsthand. So, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but the person who had to shepherd uh, this uh, woman through this, uh, so what happened was the, the, the school employee who had had this private conversation in, uh, on school grounds about this drag queen story hour, she had a private conversation, the person who had the conversation went, went and told the principal. The principal calls this person into their office, and she leaves understanding she had been fired. Okay? So I, I kind of ended the story there last time. Well, I've, I've got more details clarified. She did return with human resources the, the, the following week. Obviously, she really thought that something had happened, right? Um, the principal said that she had not been fired, uh, but affirmed that she had been, been given an official reprimand. Now, we don't really know here. Was this a misunderstanding, a change of story? Did the principal really expect her to never come back? I'm not really even sure. Uh, the principal did tell her with the uh, human resource person there that it was against school policy to say anything that was not supportive of the LGBTQ plus agenda while on school grounds. Okay, so, she, so she couldn't say anything that wasn't supportive of it while on school grounds, even in private conversations, even about things that didn't even actually happen at school. So that was the official school policy. The principal told her that the job was still hers if she wanted it, but that if this happened again, she would be let go. So I wanted to kind of circle back to the story, make sure I got the, the facts right. Is a little less shocking, probably not... Just as shocking, the first time the person heard that and thought that they were fired. Uh, but as we circle back, I think that still leaves us in a pretty uh, clear situation of how things can be changing in America, right? That a private conversation 
can lead to you being brought into the school principal's office, and it can lead to being told if you were to have a private conversation like this again on school ground, you would be let go for certain. So, uh, so I guess I'm kind of apologizing. I should have done better on that. And I'm thankful for the brothers. Like, you know, I was searching on the news. I didn't hear anything about this. Like, that would have been big news. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there's enough facts here that are plenty disturbing as is. I do want to make clear, though, that this is, this is in no way me saying anything negative about public, uh, about public uh, 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 education. That is not at all the point of this. This could happen in many different jobs. So my goal is not to say, we need to all pull our kids out of public school. This is a choice that we, don't, uh, that we can give counsel about. We can talk you through those kinds of decisions. The Bible doesn't tell us whether we should homeschool or private school or public school. And so those are choices that, that we all as parents need, need to wisely make. So the goal, and I hope that none of you took that, was not to say, chaos is reigning and the amendments are being thrown away and uh, I didn't want that panic to ensue, but to talk about the kind of suffering they are going through in First Peter, being, being maligned and, and scoffed and rumors being told and spread and maybe people losing their jobs or losing profession or, or livelihood because of, these, uh, because of their allegiance to Christ, uh, that is happening. So... Uh, thank you for your patience. If you have more questions, if I owe more apologies, please uh, uh, let me know. And please, if you ever hear me say anything, you're like, that doesn't sound right. Please come and, 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 and talk to me. And either I'll do more research, I'll make a phone call. That's true if, I, uh, if you think that I've misinterpreted a passage. I, I, I love those conversations. So please come to me afterwards because I want to make sure that I handle God's word right. And I want to be humble when I mess up things. And I could have done a better job with getting that whole story before I communicate it to you. It does leave us, though, as we get into First Peter, that uh, this is an appropriate book in God's timing. That this is an appropriate book in God's timing. That someone who expresses disapproval about drag queens can be brought into an office and given a reprimand in Spokane, Washington. And that can happen here. That can happen in our jobs that can happen in our schools um, and we need to be continuing to to prepare to suffer as we are sojourners so if you have your bibles please turn to first peter 4 verses 12 through 19 we're doing this is our last time in this section and i'm going to read through beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And we'll be focusing this morning on these next verses. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, 
Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it so that we can be equipped uh, to do every good work, Lord, that you are training us in righteousness. And we do want to be righteous. We want to be pleasing to you. Uh, Father, we come before you with, with such varied uh, lives, such varied experiences. So, some of us have, have been softly made fun of, and some of us uh, have been on the verge, if not gone through, being disowned by family for our, our allegiance to your son. Father, some of us will face these trials in the upcoming week of uh, perhaps being, being made fun of or being dragged into a private conversation, become public, and then others of us may not experience any of this suffering. Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are experiencing this in different ways as well. We thank you for your word that you've given, and we want to be well-equipped, Lord. We want to have a right view of, of, of even this verse. What does it mean? have judgment begin with your household. We ask for wisdom now and we come to your word. Help us to be equipped so that we can live lives pleasing to you as we depend upon you to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16, in the first five verses of this section, we've seen five instructions so far from how we are to be preparing and responding to suffering. And I'm going to review them quickly. They, they are there in, in your notes. And this is Peter's last major section on suffering. He, 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 will, he will address it quickly, but this is kind of his, his and I've described it as his, his Cliff Notes version, as his kind of bullet point outline, as he is preparing the, uh, the suffering and sojourning saints of Asia Minor for the persecution that they were going through, but also that they would increasingly go through. And that is true of what the early church went through as, as it gets closer to the end of the first century. At this point, as far as we know, there was not widespread persecution. As far as we know, there was not people who were necessarily being beaten or thrown into jail or even killed, although those things had happened to Peter and it had happened in, in other parts of the of of that ancient Roman world, but not necessarily here in Asia Minor right now. We get evidence from, from that in this letter. But they were going through fiery ordeals, through being maligned, through being scoffed at, uh, mocked, being slandered. So the first instruction we saw in verse 12 was that we need to expect to be tested. We saw that God's purpose in our testing uh, was and that God's purpose of these fire ideals that we're going through is for testing so that we would know indeed that we belong to him. In verse 13, we saw that we are to rejoice in our suffering, that we share the sufferings of Christ for being like Christ and being aligned with Christ. And that the purpose of that is that when his glory returns with him, we know that we are going to be those who rejoice with exultation. We saw instruction three, our third instruction was to be comforted by God's approval and presence. We saw that in verse 14 that we are blessed because the spirit of glory and God wrestling on, on us. And that's actually an idea that Peter's going to be responding to. Uh, he's going to return to this idea that we are God's temple, that we are the place where his glory dwells. Instruction four, we saw last time, that don't deserve your suffering. And, and yes, you shouldn't suffer as a murderer. I hope none of you have in this past week. Or as a thief, even more broadly an evildoer, but, but, but as a troublesome meddler. And perhaps Peter was talking about the, 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 the potential that, that Christians could have to, 
to, to overextend themselves into people's lives, kind of expecting them to follow Christian morals instead of having good, uh, honest conversations about the need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Instruction 5, we saw to glorify God in in, in your suffering, you saw that in verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And there's the command there, don't be ashamed. Don't fall into their tactics. When they treat you like a criminal or an outcast, don't, don't take that on yourself. Don't allow yourself to be ashamed. It said glorify God. And we saw we glorify God by suffering like Jesus suffered and by loving our enemies and rejoicing that we're worthy to be counted uh, to suffer for his name and by boldly proclaiming salvation in Christ alone. And we glorify God by obeying God instead of men and by praying for boldness and by singing his praises and waiting for his reward and counting trials to be joy and suffering along with his people and waiting for his vindication. That is how we bring glory to God. It leads to our final two instructions in Peter's summary teaching on how we are to respond to persecution as Christians, to suffering for Christ. And we're, we're looking at these so that you'll be ready, so that you'll be ready to please God as you suffer. Whether it's being called into an office, whether it's in the school cafeteria, whether it's the next time you're at a family get-together. Maybe it's when you try to start a conversation with your neighbors. I don't know when the next time is going to be. Peter is writing to a broad group of churches. He doesn't know for all those individuals when the next time they face suffering is going to be either, but he is preparing them and equipping them. And that is what we want to be this morning, is to be prepared and equipped. So let's look at the sixth instruction this morning. It is to be comforted in your, in your confirmation. Be comforted in your confirmation. We're going to see this in verses 17 and 18. And as you read through them, they might pause you. They are very interesting verses. Verses 17 and 18. We see that Peter begins in verse 17 with a for. There's, there, there, there's a reason here. There's a because. And to look what that because is, we have to go back to the end of verse 16. He's not to be ashamed. He is to glorify God in this name of Christian, being called a Christian. Why? Well, Peter adds more reason. For, because it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. See, God has a good purpose in his people's suffering. It is a purpose that you can embrace. A purpose that will embolden you in your glorifying him. And that purpose is our judgment. That doesn't sound comforting at all, though, does it? Right? Like, that's a bit of a surprise as you're going through this. Glorify God in this name, for judgment begins with us. I don't really get that. Well, Lord willing, by God's grace, we will have that uh, understood by the time we're done this morning. Now, it's not a surprise in 1 Peter that God's people would be judged. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter said, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter knew that we would all be before God as judged, that we would be rewarded for our obedience. Now, we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that there is an evaluation that will happen. And among all humanity, the only ones who have good works to show, truly God-pleasing works done for God's glory, relying upon God's strength, are those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can look forward to that, but there is a sense that evaluation is coming. So this is not a new idea in First Peter of God's people being judged. Second Corinthians 5.10, we see a similar truth. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But the timing is surprising here. The timing is, is surprising, verse 17. For it is time, now is the time, now is the season for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now we might be okay, like Peter had said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, but it's still future. We expect that judgment when Christ returns, when we are before him, we expect that judgment to happen. When, when he evaluates the, 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 the good works that we've accomplished through his grace, through his strength, and we know that all the straw and stuff is going to burn up, but there's going to be true works that he's done through us. But Peter's not saying the end of all things is near here. Not in this verse. He's saying now's the season, now's the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So in what way is it time now for this judgment to begin? See, for those who belong to Christ, for those who have put their faith in his son and have been given new life, for those who belong to the household of God, judgment begins in this life. The word judgment has a range of meanings. The word judgment has a range of meanings. See, judgment is not only, although it can be used this way, as the legal decision rendered. Now, we know those who are in Christ Jesus, that legal decision rendered is not guilty, right? In fact, the legal decision is they are righteous in Christ, and then they bear fruit of that in our lives. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So judgment, though, and, and, and as it's used in, in Greek, is more than this legal decision rendered. It's also the action of God as judge. And we can think of judgment as a process as well. In fact, we have to, to, to understand this verse here. Judgment is something that is ongoing. So, for example, you can think, if you remember the story of Solomon in, in 1 Kings, when the two women come before him saying, each of them saying that the baby is her baby. And so Solomon uh, says, well, fine, I'll cut the baby in two, and you each can have half. Of course, knowing that the true mom is going to say, no, the other woman can have that baby. Well, Solomon there is judging. He, he, he's in the process of, of determining truth. He's in the process of revealing truth. Now, God doesn't need to determine truth. God knows what is true, and he knows what is true of our spiritual condition. But he is in the process of revealing what is true about us. See, God uses the suffering of Christ to reveal our faith in Christ. Our sufferings with Christ are being aligned with him to reveal our faith in Christ. His judgment of his people does not wait until heaven. Now, the final reward is in heaven, but his judgment begins now. In his mercy, in his mercy, judgment begins here. Now, where we can benefit from the confirmation that comes, where we can be comforted by the confirmation that we receive. He says, Peter says, Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, household suggests family, which is true. He is talking about God's family, the brothers and sisters in Christ. But commentaries are united that really, that this is more simple. It's the house of God. The picture here when Peter uses this phrase, the house of God, is, is a temple. 
which in this age is the church. In 1 Peter 2.5, we already saw that Peter uses the, the, this word picture. You also, brothers and sisters in Christ, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the place where God's worship happens. God's worship happens in his people. We are the house of God, not this building, but the church. And so he is saying that it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, with the church, with God's temple. Now, we don't know for sure where Peter gets this idea from, but it is possible. It is from the Old Testament, perhaps in Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel 9. And so if you have your Bibles there and you, you want to flip, you can. Ezekiel 9, I'm going to start at verse 3, and it describes this, this scene here, how, how Ezekiel in a vision is seeing angels that are going to go and, uh, and bring judgment on Jerusalem for their many years of idolatry. Now, we know that that judgment is going to be acted by the Babylonians who are going to come. But he's seeing a vision now, these angels who are going out. We see it in Ezekiel 9, verse 3 through 6. This, this may have been Peter's, Peter's background. It says, Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And the idea here is that God's glory is starting to leave from the temple, from the house of God in the Old Testament in, in, in Jerusalem. And the glory is starting to leave the temple because God is going to leave his people. He's going to leave them over to destruction. And so he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And Ezekiel's watching this. And one of these men clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case is a angel. And the Lord Yahweh said to this angel, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. And he's saying that there's righteous people among you. There are people who hate what's going on in the city. And go and mark each of those people on their foreheads. Then verse 5, so that's, so that's what was said to one of the angels. To the other angels, he said in my hearing, Ezekiel's hearing, verse 5, Ezekiel 9, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men and young men, maidens, little children and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark and you shall start from my sanctuary. So the angel is supposed to go through and to set apart all of God's people. And then following that was going to be destruction on all those who hadn't been set aside, so starting from my sanctuary. And then it says at the end of verse 6, so they started with the elders who were before the temple. They start from the temple and they work out. All those who are God's people are rescued, but all the rest were going to be destroyed. Now, that's, now, now this judgment is pictured here, but it is ultimately uh, uh, brought, brought by the Babylonians. Now, this is quite possibly the background that Peter is referring to here when he talks about judgment beginning with the house of God. Right there it was, it began at the temple, and it spread out. Today, God's judgment begins with the church. See, the scales on which God weighs, the character of our faith, are fiery trials. The scales which God weighs, the character of our faith, are fiery trials. So as you 
persevere in your faith, in your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when you're tested, we know that it's God alone who receives the glory. It is only through him that we persevere. But you, as you persevere, as you go through these trials, receive much-needed encouragement. You are comforted in your confirmation, the confirmation of your faith. And this is why suffering believers rejoice. Because they know, and we see this in, in the book of Acts, after they've been flogged, they go rejoicing. They didn't deserve to be aligned with Christ, but they are. And they know they are still belonging to him. It doesn't matter what happens to them. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses trials to confirm our faith. Peter continues at the end of verse 17. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So God's judgment started, it's, it's really a merciful judgment that begins with his people. It is a judgment that as they go through trials, even suffering for Christ, and they continue in faithfulness to Christ, they are encouraged that they belong to Christ. That is an act of God's grace. But if that's an act of God's grace for his people, what happens when that judgment extends to those who do not obey the gospel? And we talk about that. I love Peter's use of that phrase. The gospel must be obeyed. If you are not right with the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you have not been reconciled, if you are dead in your transgressions and sins, if you are living for yourself, if you are your own king, you must obey the gospel today. Your creator has declared that you must repent and put your faith in his son. The gospel must be obeyed. If you do not obey the gospel, if you do not turn to be saved, you are continuing in defiance against him. So don't let that be you this morning. May none leave this morning rejecting obedience of the gospel. There is good news for you. You can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Don't leave this morning not having obeyed the good news. The gospel must be obeyed. And he warns, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? See, God's judgment on the saints, this, this merciful judgment, it's painful though. It's a fiery ordeal. It's hard to be mocked. It's hard to have family disown you. It is hard to be thrown in prison. It is hard to be burned at the stake. But what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? That's how God treats us whom he loves. Not in anger, but in mercy. Confirming our faith for his glory. Really, Helping us receive eternal rewards, which we don't deserve. What will be the outcome, the end of those who refuse to believe, who will not obey the gospel? And Peter leaves his question open-ended. Is if, if, if God's own sheep suffer in this life, the, the, the ones who are in Christ, his beloved before the creation of the world, the, the ones who are chosen in Christ, if they suffer, how horrible is it going to be the judgment of those who persist in eternal rebellion and self-righteousness? If life here is hard now for his loved ones, his children, what will hell be like for his enemies? Peter continues with the idea in verse 18. 
And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinners? And you have a New American Standard Bible. You can see that's all written in capital letters. It's a quote from the Greek translation of Proverbs 11.31. Now, it's an interesting phrase again. It's with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Now, it's not saying that the righteous save themselves by difficulty. If you do lots of, of, of good works, you can save yourself. You can make yourself right with God. If, if, if you work really hard, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult, though. No, that is not what he's saying. But that they go through difficulty in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is, it is with difficulty, or ESV says that they're scarcely saved. It is hard to be a Christian. And Peter knows that. He wouldn't trade it for anything. But they're, they're going to go through suffering. Saints look back and say, that was not easy. But God's grace preserved me. If it were up to me, I would have, I would have given in. I would have succumbed to the pressure. I would have capitulated. I would have been ashamed. But I couldn't because of his grace. So I persevered by his grace. He preserved me. But if we who've obeyed suffer in this life, how hopeless is the condition of the godless man and the sinner? This is what will become the godless man and the sinner. He's not talking about those who have been saved, but those who persist in disobedience, the godless, those, those who defy God's presence, who refuse to live like God is who he says he is, who are continually stiff-arming God, the sinners who reject his laws, who ignore his commands upon them. He's saying if it's with difficulty, if the Christians have to go through these fiery ordeals, what will come of the godless man and the sinner? And you can even see here God's grace. That's not us, brothers and sisters. That is not us. We are those who with difficulty, yes, it's hard. But we will preserve. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego passed through the fiery furnace untouched, Nebuchadnezzar knew that their God was the one true God. How much Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego must have been encouraged. They were going in in that fire, whether they got burned up or not. We know who we worship. Can you imagine that encouragement as they come through that fire? See, God's people will go through fire, but it will confirm whom they belong to. Judgment begins with us. Our perseverance is evidence of the verdict that God has already given, that we have been declared righteous in Christ through faith in Christ alone. So we can be comforted as our faith is confirmed. Again, we don't need to fear trials. We don't need to fear those, those conversations with, with those who don't know the Lord. We don't need to fear family dinners. We don't need to fear what's going to happen in class the next day for what we said the previous day about believing the Bible, or a conversation in private about why homosexuality. We don't have to be afraid. Those fiery ordeals that we go through are going to be confirming. 
It's God's gracious judgment beginning with us so we know to whom we belong. This is such a different take of so many in America now, where there's only doom and gloom and terror at what's going to happen. If we go through judgment, it's God's grace on us because we will know we do not face this much worse judgment to follow. So we need to be comforted by the confirmation of, of our faith. We also need to rest in God's hand while doing good. We also need to, and this is our seventh and final, rest in God's hand while doing good. And Peter's really going to tie together some major themes of this book. He's talked a ton about doing good. We'll see how many times. He's also talked about entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And that really is a summary of this whole section, and in ways a summary of the majority of the book. According to the will of God, those who suffer according to the will of God in verse 19. Now, according to the will of God, it could either mean according to the will of God because we obey God's, obey God's commands. We're suffering while doing good. But it could also mean according to the will of God is according to the decree of God, that God is the sovereign over our suffering. And both interpretations are possible. I agree with, 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 with the commentators that land that really he's talking about God's sovereign decree, God's will that we go through suffering. And the biggest reason is because at the end of the verse, he's going to go back to doing what is right. So instead of having this idea of suffering, doing good twice, uh, really I think that the focus here is therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God. And what encouragement there is in that. That God's will for us includes fiery ordeals. It includes sharing in Christ's suffering. It includes the being reviled in verse 14. The, the judgment we go through in this life in verse 16. All of this occurs according to the omniscient and omnipotent will of God. So brothers and sisters who are suffering now, and brothers and sisters who will suffer soon, your suffering is according to God's righteous, merciful, and sovereign plan. It was his good plan to save you. It is his good plan to test you. All of this is out of his goodness to us in Christ Jesus. You know his purpose. It is to glorify himself by refining you, by confirming you in your conversion. So what do we do knowing his sovereign purpose? Entrust your souls to him. Entrust means to place your possession in someone else's care. When uh, we leave our uh, home for an extended trip, I gather the, 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 the important information in, in our house, our social security cards, birth certificates, empty checkbooks, uh, those credit cards that are indestructible now, kind of like made out of metal, you don't know what to do with them, you can't shred them. Uh, I take all of those things and I go to one of the brothers here and say, hey, can you please watch this in your house? I don't really want to leave it in my house. Now, so far, we've had no new credit cards open up in our names while doing that. So I'm thankful we've been able to entrust that, 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 that manila envelope full of stuff into our, our brother's hands here. That's just a picture of what it means to entrust our souls to him. Who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls 
to a faithful creator. When we suffer for Christ, we must respond by entrusting our souls to him. You place yourself in his hands. You deposit yourself in his vault. You anchor yourself in his harbor. You hide yourself in his fortress. You find shelter underneath his wings. If we trust him to save us from eternal and deserved judgment, if we trust our souls to, to, to hide ourselves in Christ from that wrath that we deserve, how much more should we trust him when we go through unjust suffering? We entrust ourselves to him. So why do we place ourselves in God's hands? Well, he gives reason. Because he is the creator. And as the creator, this earth belongs to him. You belong to him if you are in Christ Jesus. Once through creation, he made you. And twice through redemption, he purchased you. You are owned by him and purchased by him. You are his creation and his new creation. You were made by him and you will be resurrected by him. John 10 verse 29 says, My father, Jesus says, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And this is why we entrust ourselves to him. No one's greater. He is our creator. He is, he is the earth belongs to him, but he's also our all-powerful creator. He's powerful enough to guard the life you've entrusted to him. See, all creation is subservient to his sovereign will, including whoever would persecute you, whoever would make fun of you, whoever would ostracize you. He numbers every hair. He writes our every day. He feeds the birds and he clothes the lilies. His eye is on the sparrow and on those who suffer. He has the power to stop every insult, to shut every mouth, to make any unjust law go away, to free any of our brothers and sisters in Christ in prison around the world. He has all that power, so we can entrust ourselves to him. He is a faithful creator, and as creator, he has the right to judge, and he will judge. His law is the only law. His standard, the only ultimate standard, and his verdict is the only one that matters, so we can entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. And that's what Peter says here. He's not just the creator. He goes beyond. He's the faithful creator. He is the promise-keeping creator. He is the trustworthy creator who chooses to communicate and promises that he has the power to keep, promises that he didn't have to communicate in, but he does. See, no one forces God, God to make promises. But no one can prevent him from making them. God's creation, his physical universe, operates according to laws. But those laws are ultimately fickle things. I mean, it's so, we see God's faithfulness in the sun rising daily. We know that the earth spins around. But we also see in scripture that there's times when the sun was blotted out. And the sun moved backwards and the sun stood still. The sun is fickle compared to God's promises. He, he, he manipulates physical laws as he wishes, but his promises he never breaks. He is the faithful creator. And so as you look in the future at suffering, as you look towards going overseas as a missionary, 
as you look to opening your mouth in your neighborhood. You can entrust yourselves to your faithful creator. And Peter expands. Well, how do we do this? He describes, trust their souls in a faithful creator in doing what is right. In doing what is right. And these are the circumstances in which we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. We display this, our, 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 tr our trusting ourselves in a context of loving others. Doing right and doing good saturates First Peter, particularly chapters 2 and 3. In 2.12, it talks about how the Gentiles will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And there's a different word there, but same idea. In 2.14, it's a different form of the same word. How, how that God gives uh, the government to praise those who are doing right. And then verse 15, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 2.20, this says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God when you do good. 1 Peter 3.6 you become her children, Sarah's children. If you do what is right, do what is good without being frightened by any fear. 1 Peter 3.11, you must turn away from evil and do good. 1 Peter 3.13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And 1 Peter 3.17, for it is better if God shall will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And again, that same word there, doing good. I want to bring all those examples together so that you see this is, this is to be a major focus of us as Christians who are sojourners and are suffering. We are those who are committed to doing good. It's doing that which is beneficial to another, Lexicon says. It, 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 is, it is a high level of, of exemplary conduct, of doing what's right. It, the word means more than law-binding, though. It's not just kind of checking the box and make sure you don't go above the speed limit. It's really what Jesus pictures in Luke 6, verses 33 to 36. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? That's, that's just normal good. For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And this is the kind of good that he's talking about. It really is extravagant good. It is, it, it is, it is above what is required good. One commentator writes, it's good works beyond that normally expected in a given situation. It doesn't seem to be merely private acts of Christian piety, you know, doing good with your Christian friends, but deeds that would also be generally acknowledged by society as good. So we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. The evidence of that is our commitment to doing good. We're not like those who are ashamed. It's not time for us as Christians to pull back and to huddle up, to kind of get into our Christian and using via word ghetto of, of, of what the Jews did in Poland. It's not time just to, just, just to kind of circle back. Yes, persecution may be coming, but we're supposed to entrust ourselves in doing good. This is our context for entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. See, we are those who love humans. 
We hate sin. But we love our brothers and sisters, humans. Not brothers and sisters in Christ, but all humans. We understand that they have been made in God's image. That they are worshipers. Their worship faculty is broken. They're worshiping all kinds of things besides God. But, but, but we know that they were created to worship God. We see even now, even in, after the destruction of the fall, even God's image still there to some extent. We desire their happiness at God's right hand. We want them to be his worshipers. We love them. That is what it means to be a Christian. To be born again is to love people. We have a special love for those who are in Christ, but we should love all. To love our enemies, Jesus says. We are those who, by God's grace, and I'm convicted, welcome new neighbors. We're excited when we get new neighbors. We want to meet them. We are those who help our co-workers move. We are those who bring meals. We are those who find people interesting and we want to hear about their lives. We are those who sit with, with the lonely or maybe those who are strange kids at school, those who sit by themselves and no one else will sit with. We are those who continue to serve family that has mocked us again and again for our, our love of the Lord Jesus. And in all doing that, we would be fools, really, to separate that kind of love from communicating the gospel that could save them. This is what it is to do good. And this is the context in which we entrust ourselves as a faithful creator. It, with it, there may not be a whole lot of entrusting ourselves we need to do if we just pull back and hide. But it's when we are engaged with the world and we love the world and we want to get to know people and we want to hear their life stories and we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ, their only hope, the gospel that they've yet to obey. As we do all that, we are, we, we are placed into situations. We have to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, to our faithful creator in doing good. This is how we become like our faithful creator. Matthew 5, verses 44 to 45, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This isn't talking about how we get saved. This is about us demonstrating the character of those who are saved, children of God, born again of God, born by God's seed through the Spirit, bringing us to new life through faith in Christ. And in verse 45, Matthew 5, For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what God's being a faithful creator is like. He loves all. Matthew 5, 48. And then Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the immediate context there, being perfect is loving our enemies. That's what being like our faithful creators like. So this is, this is not time for Christians to huddle up and hide. This is time for Christians to be known as lovers of humanity. Lovers of humanity who sit down and share a hard truth, but a glorious truth. But not only 
who share hard and glorious truths. Also, people who love. So that there's no division in what we say and what we do. This is a hard task. I've got lots of growing to do in this. You do too. At least most of you. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's got this down. We don't know how to do this as we ought to do. That's why Jesus says that. We know that we need a savior. We know we need his help. And as we look at these various instructions for suffering in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and for those of us who were here in the first hour learning about the call to contentment we have and how we can help one another be content, and that challenging message, and, th- and these commands here, we can't do this without the Lord Jesus. So are we committed to be like our faithful creator? And in being like our faithful creator, in being like the Lord Jesus Christ, will we trust him, his help, as we suffer according to the will of God, entrusting our souls to faithful creator and doing what's right? Let's pray. And dear Father, uh, your word is uh, very challenging. This last verse would have been easier if you left off that part about in doing what is right. It's, it's tough to entrust ourselves to you. But then to be reminded that the context is, is pushing us. It's loving others. It's loving them in action and in the truth of the gospel. It's not enough to, to pull back and hide. Father, we thank you that judgment is beginning with your people. And this is not about you sending down hell on your people. It's about you demonstrating and proving who we are. And we need that, Father. You don't need that. We need that. So I thank you for your wisdom in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. As particularly as we are in the context of those who are, who are in doing good, who are committed to fulfilling your commands, committed to being like you. And as they do so, maybe that is continuing to love lost family. Maybe it is continuing to reach out in a classroom or a work environment, continuing to be kind to those who have pushed aside both affection and the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would be confirming to the hearts of my brothers and sisters, uh, that they indeed are yours. And even as we are confirmed that we belong to you, Lord, we are uh, increasingly determined to warn those who aren't obeying the gospel. So help us, Father, as we go into this upcoming week uh, to, 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 to not just be encouraged by what we enjoy, but also to be sobered by what is going to happen to the godless and the sinner. And help us, Father, to be wise and engaging in ways of doing good. At the same time, entrusting ourselves to you. We thank you for your word here. Lord, we pray that you be preparing us for good works done for your glory with a bold proclamation of your son in this upcoming week. In Jesus' name, amen.